Good evening, my name is Robert and uh, my main work in this, I'm, I'm one of the staff team, I look after the 8.30 early morning congregation. But it's a great pleasure to share with you this evening and to visit you here. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Today we come to the eighth and last sermon in the Old Testament book of Job. For those who have been able to come with us, it's been quite a journey. I think I can speak for all of us who've preached on Job that when I say this has been one of the most difficult and yet rewarding series that I think each of us have experienced. And I hope it's been so for you. Well, at least the rewarding bit. What has made it so difficult and yet rewarding? Well, let me show you this way. Supposing you to ask me a question. Rob, what is the book of Job about? And I say, what's it about? Well, it's about a man whose name was Job, who lived in the land of Uz, who was blameless and upright. And you say, well, no, 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 but I know that, you say. I know it's about Job, a man of immense wealth and honour, of the highest character and piety, who is plunged into terrible suffering when God removes his protection, who says he wished he'd never been born, and then his friends come to try and console him and only make things worse, and so Job tries to get God to answer him, but instead a young angry windbag speaks up instead, and then wonderfully God does address Job out of the storm, and Job withdraws his complaint, and as we've just heard in the reading tonight, the Lord then restores Job to position greater than he was before. I know all about that. But what's it about? What's the point of Job? And the difficulty and joy of working through Job is that that question is not answered in any obvious way. And for good reason. The book of Job was not really written to be analysed, sliced up and preached on it as we have done. It was meant instead to be listened to as the one rich drama, presumably read aloud. It was written to be experienced as we sit there and hear Job's cry of agony, his friend's seemingly sensible but useless counsel, Job's desperate attempt to get God to answer him, the slightly comic angry young guy that turns up, and then the Lord's majestic answer to him describing his mysterious and yet personal lordship in his creation. Like all great literature, Job doesn't simply have a point, and that's it. And yet, it is scripture, and it is written for our learning. And it does give clues of some of the aspects to answer the question, what is Job about? One is a very, one of the most important ones, is in the very first words of our reading tonight. Job chapter 42, verse 7. The Lord has been speaking to Job out of the storm, questioning him. Job has withdrawn his suit against God. Then this. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. This is one of the clear markers one of the few clear markers to interpret the book. You have not spoken the truth about me. You have not spoken what is right about me, as my servant Job has. After chapters and chapters and chapters of the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and Elihu, the angry young man, 
relentlessly telling Job that he is not speaking what is right about God, then God comes and says Job has. It's the friends who haven't. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And notice when you heard the reading, every time God speaks about Job, he calls him not Job, but my servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job. Because then to rub it in, the Lord asks the three, and he ignores Elihu entirely, to offer up burnt offerings for their foolishness, their stupidity. And guess who will secure their forgiveness? The very one they persistently argued was the sinner. Verse 8, my servant Job will pray for you and I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Second time. That's a key which helps open up the book for us. Job, my servant Job, has spoken what is right about God. What's the book of Job about? If it's about anything, it's about God. It's about what's right about God, the truth about God. And when you think of it, that's no surprise. If you've been following us, the bulk of Job consists of back and forth speeches of well-crafted, rich Hebrew poetry, and their main focus, the ways of God. Job is a God-obsessed book. Which leads to the obvious question, what was it that Job said that was right about God? And here I need to dive in for the last time, briefly back into the main body of the book. Let me take you to one very powerful passage that gets to the heart of the matter. It's chapter 16, verse 11 and following. Job is speaking. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I've sewn sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Dark shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer pure. Job is saying three things here. One, he is experiencing terrible suffering. My face is red with weeping and dark shadows ring my eyes. Two, God is behind it. In fact, Job experiences as God personally attacking him. All was well with me, but he shattered me, seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. Three, this is completely unwarranted. Yet my hands have been free of violence and my prayer pool pure. As far as Job is concerned, this is for no reason. And, and so Job, as we heard in earlier sermons, struggles to get God to answer him and vindicate him. In summary, what Job is saying about God is that he has afflicted Job with unwanted terror, unwanted suffering, unwarranted troubles. This is something that the reader of the book of Job knows already. Come back with me for a moment to the very beginning, the opening of the book. You remember the book of Job starts with the Lord drawing 
the attention of Satan or the accuser to Job, a man of great wealth and honour, but also a man who fears God and turns away from evil. But cynical Satan responds with the accusation, does Job fear God for nothing? Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. That's Job 1 verse 9 in the NRS, New International Version, which we use here at St. Philip's. The more literal phrase for, for nothing in does Job fear God for nothing is without any reason. Does Job fear God without any reason? Implication being he has got a reason for himself. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. And as we heard, God does just as Satan suggests and Job is plunged into terrible misery. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, the Lord again draws Satan's attention to Job, who, despite all his sufferings, quote, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. There it is again, exactly the same phrase, same Hebrew phrase, without any reason. And we need to take God's words here very seriously. What's going on is this. To test whether Job will fear the Lord without any reason, that is, without getting anything out of it, the Lord is incited to ruin Job without any reason. That is, completely unwarranted. To test whether Job will fear the Lord without any reason, the Lord is incited to ruin Job without any reason. Or to put it another way, to test whether Job will fear God for nothing, the Lord is inside to ruin Job, Job for nothing. I know you might say, well, isn't, isn't the dispute over Job a reason? No, it's the occasion, not the reason. God himself says, you incited me to ruin Job without any reason. And that is what Job keeps saying throughout all the book. He has been inflicted with unwarranted suffering, unwarranted troubles, unwarranted terror. And that's what the three friends cannot accept. Job's troubles cannot be unwarranted. There is no such thing as unwarranted suffering. This must have happened for a good reason. God would never do this without a good reason. And from their point of view, the sooner Job realises this, the sooner he can be restored to his wealth and honour. For his part, Job accuses his friends, not only of failing to listen to him, their friend, but worse, in effect, speaking dishonestly in seeking to defend God. Listen to what he says in chapter 13, verse 7 and following. He's speaking to the three friends. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? <laughs> Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive a mortal? He would surely call you into account if you secretly showed partiality. It turns out Job is spot on. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So what is Job about? It's about God and unwarranted suffering. Or better, about the reality of coming to trust God, to be at peace with God, as Job eventually does, 
in the face of unwarranted suffering, unwarranted evil. Let me make three points of clarification what I mean by unwarranted suffering. One, if it wasn't for the reality of God, there would not be an issue of unwarranted suffering. Why? For the simple reason that in a universe of just stuff, there is no unwarranted or warranted anything. Richard Dawkins, the world's grumpiest atheist, expressed this quite dramatically from a quote I think Justin mentioned at the beginning of this series. I quote, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. End of quote. Two, to talk about unwarranted suffering implies there is also what you might call warranted suffering. And there is suffering you cause by your own stupidity to yourself. Suffering that is a judgment of God on sin. Suffering that God can sometimes brings upon us to turn us around, to recognize our need for him and come back in repentance. But three, according to Job, both the book and the man, there can be, there is suffering without warrant, suffering without any reason. And that's what Job experiences from God. And Job wants God to come clean to him about this. And yet after all his raging and grieving, Job comes to the point where he can peaceably and humbly say to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Not just meaning, I know you have the power to do whatever you want. He already knew that. But you are free to do all things. You, the Lord, can be trusted to do all things. And this comes about, as we heard the last two weeks, unexpectedly, it comes about like, for the Lord unexpectedly, I should say, directly addresses Job. The Lord does not speak to Job about Job, nor about his suffering. Instead, Job hears about the Lord's almighty power in his mysterious yet personal relationship with all his creation, even the wild and terrifying things in it. That'll be enough for Job. I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job gets no explanation, let alone justification for his troubles, because in truth, there isn't any. The Lord has brought all this trouble on him without any reason. And the triumph of Job, the man, and of the Lord's trust in Job is that Job has feared God without any reason. In the language of modern politics, Job is not a transactional believer. That is in it for what he can get out of it, in it for the deal. Satan was wrong, God was right, Job was right as well. And as you heard in our reading just a moment ago, when that terrible time of testing is over and Job has prayed for his friends, the Lord restores Job to honour and prosperity. Job emerges as a greater man than before and his wealth and standing is greater than before. 
we read that all Job's brothers and sisters and all who had known him, who seemed, by the way, mysteriously absent through the rest of the book, they obviously had abandoned him when his world fell apart, they come over to eat at his house and, quote, they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And they bring gifts of considerable wealth. And the Lord blesses Job more than ever before. Twice as many sheep, twice as many camels, twice as many yoke of oxen, twice as many donkeys. Same number of children, though. At staff meeting this week, one of us suggested that twice as many children might not be such a blessing. However, Job's three daughters are really something. They are named for us. Jemima, which means turtle dove, a bird known for its grace and beauty. Kezia, a beauty made of a, a perfume made of cinnamon. And Keren Hapach, which is a container for eyeshadow. Grace, perfume, cosmetics. They are real stunners. Verse 15. Nowhere in all the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers, which in that culture is an unusual benefit. And so at last, the book of Job comes to an end. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. As we pull back and say farewell to Job, for the time being at least, what can we learn? Three important learnings come to mind. The first is this. Not everything that happens, happens for a reason. Say that again. Not everything that happens, happens for a reason. And especially not everything bad that happens, happens for a reason. There is unwarranted suffering. I could go further. Each of us here in this room and listening on the live stream will experience, probably uncertainly have experienced, unwarranted suffering, undeserved suffering. Not everything that happens, happens for a reason. Now, because we humans invariably and right, rightly look for meaning in things around us, when something terrible happens, what do we say? Why? Why has this happened? Why has this happened to me? Sometimes there is an answer. Sometimes there is no answer. It is without any reason. Of course, if you believe that God is sovereign over his creation, then you ask the question with ever more fervor. Why did God let this happen? What is God's reason for doing this to me? Sometimes there is an answer. Sometimes there is no answer, as in the case of Job, without any reason. Not everything that happens, happens for a reason. Now I know there are particular significant occasions in Scripture where something meant evil by humans is meant for the good by God. The kidnapping of Joseph in Genesis and of course the crucifixion of our Lord comes to mind immediately. 
But that doesn't mean that everything is like that. The gospel is not about telling us the hidden reason behind the suffering of the world. Jesus did not come to explain evil. He came to defeat it. To forgive sin, to heal suffering, to cast out evil and conquer death. Sometimes when something really terrible happens, well-meaning Christians will seek to defend God to the wider world. Often by giving reasons. Often in response to enthusiastic atheists who, as kind of Job's friends in reverse, assert that since there could be no reason for this catastrophe, believers must repent and embrace the obvious fact of God's non-existence. I think particularly those may remember the terrible Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. Maybe sometime this pandemic, I don't know. However, defending God in this way is a dangerous practice, placing those who do it in danger of speaking deceitfully for God, as Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar did. It's best avoided, unless you really know. And some things, and not everything happens for a reason. I know it would be very comforting to think that everything that happens happens to the world to us, does happen for a reason, even if we don't quite know what it is. But one day we'll all know the universal harmony of the world. Job teaches us this is not the way things are in God's world. Second learning. Despite this, God is to be trusted. With Job, we can say, I know you can do all things, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. As I mentioned, in speaking these words, Job was not just saying God is all-powerful. Job knew that all the time. God's problem was unwarranted suffering from this all-powerful God. The omnipotence of God was not the problem, and it will not be the solution either. And God's answer to Job's complaint about his unwarranted suffering was not to say to Job, I'm God, you're not, I'm powerful, so whatever I do is right because I do it. Suck it up, princess. The God of Job is not a fascist God. As Justice showed us in the last two weeks, when God speaks to, to Job out of the storm, Job doesn't just see the Lord's power, though he does see that, but he also he sees the wisdom, the mystery and the almost parental care that the Lord has in his personal relationship with his creation, who speaks to the sea thus far and no further, by whose wisdom the hawk takes flight, by whose power the horse breathes and goes off, who, along with Job, also made the monster behemoth, and who can even make a pet of the terrifying Leviathan. In seeing this side of God, this mysterious goodness of God, in his almost parental concern for his creation. Job can, without any answer whatsoever to his complaint, withdraw it and trust God. Job knows so little, even less than he thought. And yet now having seen God, he can say in effect, although you have afflicted me without cause, this somehow is all right, in the same way 
that you mysteriously order the world in your goodness. It's not just the power, but it was the goodness of God that Job stood out for. As Eleanor Stump writes, Job was never content to just let Job off the hook. I quote, this is in the quotes, in denouncing the comforter's willingness to kowtow to God, Job takes his stand on the goodness of God rather than with the office of God as ruler of the universe. Without losing his personal commitment to the person of God, Job refuses to accept what God does just because it's God who does it. Job spoke rightly of God. And three, the key learning for us, it is to imitate that great man, Job. He feared God and turned from evil without any reason. I should put that better. He feared God and turned away from evil without the reason of him benefiting out of it. Not to get anything out of it. He was, as I said, non-transactional in his dealings with God. When he was faced with the trouble and suffering without any reason, he did not give up on God. No matter how hard God made it for him, he stayed faithful to the Lord. And the great challenge for us is can we be people like that? Non-transactional believers. There are great blessings, but that's not the heart of why we trust and follow the living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although we regularly pray, lead us not into temptation, which is a prayer to be spared the kind of testing Job faced, the Greek word for temptation there is the word for testing, trial. Although we pray that prayer, we know that each of us will face unwarranted suffering in our lives. For some, relatively light. For some, it may be the terrors of Job. So this whole discussion is not theoretical, it's personal. Further, we have resources denied Job as in our trust of our Heavenly Father in the face of unwarranted evil. Job did not know him as his Heavenly Father. We have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A postscript. God did restore Job, and Job grew through the ordeal. The tested Job is a greater man than the untested Job. So in one sense you might say, good has come out of this. That's true. Even if we face the truth that there is unwarranted suffering in God's creation, we know that certainly there is nothing, not even suffering and death, that cannot be providentially turned towards God's good end. I'll say that again. There's nothing, not even unwarranted suffering or death, that cannot be providentially turned towards God's good end. In that sense, and in that sense only, even suffering for no reason can have kind of a reason. Suffering for no reason can have kind of a reason. As St. Peter writes in his letter to beleaguered Christians suffering unwarranted shame and community violence in their cities in Asia Minor, quote, these troubles have come so that the genuineness, the proven genuineness of your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. My dear brothers and sisters, so may it be with us. Let me pray. O God, who knows us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers, that by reason of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant to us such strength and protection as may support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations and testing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.